For those of you who have not been here in the past few weeks, let me put into context what we are about to read and what we are about to study in God's Word. We are about to begin in this body of believers uh, a tremendously committed process of spiritual growth that will last 10 years. And it is going to change our lives. It is a journey to new life. And we have been taking the Christmas story this season and using it as a paradigm or a model for transition into new life, which is exactly what it is, because the Messiah was born, which created an opportunity for new life in this world. Three weeks ago, uh, I spoke to you about how God would bring the Savior to a body of people who believed that radical change in this world was possible and would happen. That's the body to whom he sent Jesus 2,000 years ago. That's the body to which he still looks for response. That's not easy to do in this world because most of you who have lived a long time have learned enough to become cynical and have become enough protective of yourselves and your emotions to stay in cynicism. Because if you don't believe too much, you don't get hurt too much. But there are those who still will believe that God can make this world radically different. It is to you that God will bring new life. Two weeks ago, I preached about the willingness to have your life interrupted. There was such a radical interruption in Mary and Joseph's life. They lived what seemed to be a normal life, and then all of a sudden, God planted a major disturbance in the middle of their lives. There was nothing routine anymore because of that disturbance. And we talked about the interruption and how it can come from God. It can come from Satan. But God uses interruptions to get us to a place in our lives where we never could have gotten by incremental spiritual growth. Incremental spiritual growth is a wonderful thing, but it only takes us so far. Only by almost violent interruptions do we totally throw ourselves on God's mercy and His guidance and, God, and God, can God totally have control in our lives. So therefore, there was, there was a message about being interrupted. And to you who are willing to be interrupted and to learn from that interruption, you will find new life. Last week we talked about something that none of us can understand. When Mary sang in the Magnificat, or actually said, I've heard it sung so many times, my soul magnifies the Lord. In other words, translated it means God is so much bigger than I ever imagined. And we talked about how God worked in our lives even before we knew Him to bring us to a place where He could be much, a much more intimate part of our lives than we ever could have imagined. God has your life in His control. And therefore, the circumstances in which you find yourself, where they are a product of your own choice, are also a product of God's providence. God has never lost you. Before you were saved, God knew your name. 
And God made you for a purpose. And God led you through the times to himself. So therefore, we are a people of of providence. We are a people of destiny. And there is something happening in this world much larger than all of our parts put together. But yet our choices do make a difference. Now this week, in contrast to last week, I want to tell you something very simple. All of you can understand this. It is a dynamic that we find in the story of Mary and Joseph, which you had read to you during the Dermer Boy thing. Um, let me just point out to you, aren't those cute? Oh, gosh, you got up with those little hats. Were those darling? Good heavens. Let me point out to you some textual technicalities so that you can hear what the Scripture says before you hear what the Scripture means. First of all, now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken in all the inhabited earth, uh, meaning all of the Roman Empire. God used a totally pagan governmental head to work his purposes, to work his prophecy. Please don't be fooled into thinking that any nation, any king, any sovereign power in this world is outside the sovereignty of God, whether they're believers or non-believers. I hear people getting all frightened about the Middle East. And there is cause for concern and there is cause for prayer, but there is never cause for panic because God can use Saddam Hussein. You know, there is nobody that is out. This is a, this was the world leader who had declared himself to be a God. And God used him to get Mary and Joseph in the right place at the right time. Now, some of you who are historians will uh, somewhat say it's strange that they had a census. Well, it's not at all strange that they had a census. We have actual records of census. uh, What's the sensi? Censuses? What is the plural of census? Where's an English teacher among us? What is the plural of census? Anybody know? Censuses? Is that the plural? Okay. Anyhow, we have the record of many a census. (laughs) Dating from A.D. 270 clear back to A.D. 20. And if you take that 14-year cycle, this census would have been in the year 8 B.C., which is the approximate time of the birth of Christ, which is the time of the birth of Christ. Um, It was also at that time that there are uh, astronomy records of, of galaxies that merged together, but that's another story, and we'll go into that later on. The point is that don't let the census be a hang-up. We have, we have records of these censuses, and they did bring the families or the, the representatives of the family back to the city. Uh, Quirinius was governor. Uh, actually, uh, he did not become the governor until A.D. 6. For him to be governor uh, 8, B, uh, 8 B.C., you have to realize how they termed governmental officers. 
there was a head of the governor, government, but there were many officers called governors. Quirinius was in office at that time, therefore he was termed a governor. Uh, but he did not become the governor until uh, some 14 years later or whatever, how, whatever that adds up to. Um, and then one last point that you must realize in order to understand this, this text and what it says. The journey was not necessary on the government's part for Mary to make. Uh, Joseph could have gone and represented his family. Therefore, Joseph went in to a woman who was nine months pregnant, not having lived with her a great deal of time, and said something to this effect. Now, this is what it would sound like in, in, in Orlando, Florida. If you were to go into your wife being married nine months, that's all you'd been together, okay? Or you were engaged nine months. I mean, in our terms, it was, it was married. Didn't know each other all that well. And you said to her, honey, I just got a letter. We have to, I have to go to Tallahassee to register our family, to register how many kids we got, how, you know, what, what our income is. This was for tax purposes. And so how would you like to hop on your bicycle and ride up there with me? <laughs> 80 miles from Nazareth to uh, Bethlehem, would have been approximately the same physical exercise as a pregnant woman riding a bicycle from here to Tallahassee. Now, why in the world would she have gone and done that? Aside from the fact that if you've been pregnant nine months, you're ready to do anything to get unpregnant, you know, at the end. You know, you're saying, okay, let's ride a bicycle. Let's go over bumps, you know. <laughs> if you haven't got a Jeep, we'll, go, we'll do a bicycle, you know. Aside from that, why would she have made that journey? Because she knew Scripture. It says very plainly in the book of... Wait a minute, I just took that out. In the book of Micah, here it is, the fifth chapter, the second verse. But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you... One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago. Now listen to this phrase, from the days of eternity. Not only did Caesar Augustus fulfill the prophecies of Scripture, but educated Jews, those who loved God, knew the prophecy of where the Savior would be born. When the wise men came, when the magi came, there was absolutely no problem finding out where a great prince was to be born. Where was the king to be born? And the scribes came right and said, Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. Herod didn't know it but because he wasn't a lover of scriptures. But the scribes knew it and Joseph and Mary knew it. And so on cue, God manipulated an entire empire to get Joseph and Mary back to his family home, back to that lineage to have that baby. Now, you know about the text. Now, let me talk for a minute. Yeah, when have I ever talked for a minute? Let me talk for a while about the meaning of the text. In Scripture, please note that when the Bible refers to geography, 
it is usually also referring to biography. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's not referring to geography at all. The journeys in the Bible, the spaces in the Bible, are highly symbolic of where people's lives are personally. Now let me give you a clear example of that. When the Lord God was walking in the garden, after Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, and they were trying to hide behind a bush from God, now you talk about a ridiculous picture. Can you hide anywhere from God? Read Psalm 139. There is no place you can go in this universe that you can hide from God. But that's what they felt like they needed to do. And so they were behind a bush and God asked the question, where are you? Now, is it that God didn't know where they were? I mean, the bush really had him fooled? No. It is rather a question of biography, not a question of geography, a question of biography. Adam, where are you now? Now that you've eaten that, where is your life? Where are you? We ask that to one another. We're not talking about, we, I've, I've said that probably three times in this past week. Where are you now? You know, we're standing right in front of me. He could say, I'm standing right in front of you. But he knows that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking where is his life in the context of God, in the nearness of God. When God says, draw, when a scripture says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, they're not necessarily just talking about geography, are they? They're talking about where their life is. Now, there are many places in the Bible where there is an adjustment geographically or positionally. Positionally is a much better word to get closer to God to get to a place where you can see him better and he can speak to you. Let me show you one place or let me show you several places. Uh, Luke chapter 19. There is, remember, remember the song when you were growing up in Sunday school that had the Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Remember that song? Please tell me you remember that song <laughs> or I've just made a complete fool out of myself. I, I have entertained the thought that maybe my Sunday school teacher was playing a joke on me. Hunter, sing the Zacchaeus thing again. And singled me out because of my stature. But anyhow, going to yet another wonderful short person in the, in the scriptures, let's read about Zacchaeus. Behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich, and he was trying to see who Jesus was. Not just trying to see Jesus, he was trying to see who Jesus was. Um, and he was unable be because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. What did Zacchaeus do? He got himself into a position, not just geographically, not just altitude, but attitude-wise, where he could be focused in on by God and he can focus in on God. He raised above the level of the crowd. He came out from the comfortableness of anonymity and put himself in a position where he could hear God. Look at Moses in the third chapter of Exodus. 
Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led, now listen to this language, he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. What did Moses do? He led intentionally his flock to the mountain of God. There were many mountains in that area. There was much grazing land in that area. But it was the intention of Moses to come near to the mountain of God. Now, there are some funny things in the scripture of people who have tried to position themselves away from God and God has seen fit to it that they position, they got themselves into a position where they couldn't do anything else but pay attention to God. Let me show you one of those, the book of Jonah. If you want to turn to that, you know this story. Here's a guy. God told him what to do. He said no. Now, he was a nice guy. I want to tell you, he was a wonder. Jonah was a nice person, had a little attitude problem, but he's basically a nice person. You know why I know that? Because when he was on the ship and the ship was threatened, he said, it's my fault. Throw me off. If he wasn't a nice guy, he would have been bailing, you know, roping himself to a yard arm in order not to slip off the ship. But he said, throw me off. He was a wonderful person, just didn't want to do what God said. You know anybody like that? Nice people just don't want to do what God says. That's where Jonah was. As a matter of fact, when God said go this way, Jonah went that way. But there's kind of a cute little verse. The first verse, as a matter of fact, of the second chapter of this book. Let me read it to you. Jonah is just swallowed up by a big fish. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. You understand, God will get us into a position where we can't do... What are you going to do in the stomach of a fish but pray? Huh? What are you going to do? You see, Jonah now was in a position out of God's sovereignty that he had to reach out to God. That was his only hope. So therefore... If you're not going toward God, watch out because God will come toward you. The idea is to get in a position where you can hear the voice of God. It's right throughout Scripture. Let me just give you a couple more just to, to, to think about sometime. In the first chapter of John, Jesus comes by John and John's, John looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And it says in verse 37, And two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. Now there were a multitude of people, but two of them were curious enough to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said, Come and you will see. See, they took the trouble to get themselves in a position where they were close enough to God that they could hear what he had to say. Nicodemus was the same way. It says he came out in the middle of the night and got himself in, an, in close enough proximity to the, to the place where he could hear God. And then God told him, you have to be born again. You have to have a totally new life. 
Now, there are two things that I want to tell you this morning. Two things I want you to understand. Very, very simple. One is that you need to do whatever you have to to get yourself in a position to hear God. Or else you will not be able to receive the new life that He has for you. And the second thing is that the new life does not necessarily mean starting all over again. There are many people I know that say, I can never become a Christian because God will just take away everything I have. And I know as soon as I put my life into His, He's going to send me to Africa. Not with that attitude, He's not. You think He wants you in Africa with that attitude? Boy, you got another thing coming. He's got enough troubles in Africa. He's not going to send you and add to His troubles. People are so reluctant because they believe that new life means totally another life than what they have. They mean, they link, they think starting new is synonymous with starting over. Well, there are a few instances in Scripture where people were led of God to totally start their lives over again. Saul is one of those instances when he was riding to Damascus. And Jesus came to him and knocked him off his horse. He was totally made to start his life all over again. Why? Because a Jew could not become a Christian and have a family and have friends and have a synagogue, have anything that was familiar to him before. He was excommunicated big time. And therefore to believe in Jesus was to be left without anything of familiarity in your life. He had to make all new friends. He had to get an all new theology, just the opposite of what his theology had been. He had to totally start over again. But do you know how seldom that happens in Scripture? With 95% of the cases, God has sovereignly led you to where you are right now in this life because He can use you where you are right now in this life. He hasn't made a mistake up till now. He hasn't had hands off and all of a sudden now that you're listening to him, he's going to jerk you someplace clear half across the world. Good grief, he needs you where you are. Joseph and Mary, except for a short stint in Egypt that was kind of honeymoon, you know, unplanned. They were broke. They didn't have the money, but God provided the money with the wise men. The wise men brought gold so they had enough money to escape the persecution of Christ. And they, they were warned in a dream to go to Egypt, and they went to Egypt. But after that, they came right back and settled down in their hometown with all of their friends to live their life, even though they had the most radical interruption, the most radical divine intervention the world had ever seen. Where did they go to live? In Nazareth. Little old cowpoke town. Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, you got to see, don't you? Their lives were not radically changed. When Nicodemus went out to talk to Jesus, we see him twice else in the scripture. He still pay attention to Jesus. He's still a Pharisee and hanging around the Pharisees, though. God touched his life where he was. Um, when Moses... Has his life changed? He doesn't forsake his family. When God calls Abraham out, he calls his family out. Didn't call Abraham as a single, a new single out. He called Abraham in his immediate context to go 
and relocate someplace else. God has for you a plan that will not waste what he has already done. When Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. What he was saying was, Everything you've learned and everything you believed up until this time has not been a waste. I will use every bit of it, but to a degree that you have never dreamed. He says that same thing to your life. Everything you've been so far, I won't waste. You may not love it. You may regret it. There are good memories and there are bad memories. But I have been in all of those and I will not waste them. The new life I have for you will use them. But you need to make an adjustment. There's something in your life right now. And, I, and, and please don't think I know what this is. I don't, but the Holy Spirit does. And He will let you know about it. There is something in your life right now that doesn't make you start your life all over again but is a distinct and very important thing you need to change. It may be just an incremental trip. It may be just a journey that causes some hardship for a time. I don't know. I don't know if there's a person you need to delete from your repertoire or add to your repertoire. I don't know if there is a problem in scheduling and you need to... to Position yourself in your schedule to where God can really talk to you. I don't know if it's, uh, uh, if it's something about a habit. I don't know. But you know. You know what you need to do so that God can speak to you plainly. You know what you need to change. And so therefore I come to you very simply today and say, change it. Make the journey. Get to the place where God can speak to you and will speak to you plainly. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. Change it. It's very, very important. In Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 17. Let me see. I don't think I have it marked. What's the, what's the verse that says, I will... Um, is that Proverbs 17? Ah! What, what, it says, I will... Proverbs... It's not 17. What, what is the verse that says... Proverbs... It, it I'm sorry. Everybody goes, give me the verse, I'll tell you the number. <laughs> okay, okay. Settle down. It says, I, uh, I love those who say, I will draw near to those who seek me. What is that verse? Help me out. Um, your assignment for next week <laughs> is to find that verse. It's in here somewhere. What? Does somebody know? Don't hold it from me. Um, okay, I had it. Uh, yay, I got it. It's Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, 17. Ha ha, I knew there was a 17 there somewhere. <laughs> I love those who love me. 
And those who diligently seek me will find me. What a great promise. That's your promise. That's your promise. Move your life to the place where you can hear God. That does not mean changing relationships. It doesn't mean necessarily changing jobs. It, it means usually staying right where you are, but making an attitude change or a schedule change, some sort of change to where God can speak to you directly. Now, let me tell you two reasons why you need to. Then I'll quit. Number one, because there's something major in your life that God has to teach you that He hasn't taught you yet. Now, I know that you know that. There's something in your spirit that you know that God has for you that is important that you have not yet been able to hear. And it's right there. Let me tell you a Paul, Har Paul Harvey story. You know how Paul Harvey tells stories. I love this story. Pan American Exposition, Buffalo, New York. Am I doing good yet? They had an emergency care unit there that was very good, very complete, and could even be used for surgery. And it was a good thing because surgery was needed that day that they brought Bill in. Bill had been, I better quit that. Bill had been shot twice. This is a serious thing. Bill had been shot twice. One bullet deflected from his ribs, but one had entered the peritoneal cavity to go through the walls of the stomach and lodge itself someplace in his back. Well, they had to do surgery. And so they had to find, they felt they had to find the bullet because the, the risk of infection and so on and so forth and where could it be lodged. And so they searched for that bullet. They tried to trace its path. It had made no exit. But they couldn't find it. And the surgery went on. And the vital signs became weaker. Bill had a couple of things going against him. He was close to 60. He was overweight, not in tremendously good shape. And so they came to a decision time as to whether or not they could, they could cleanse that wound well enough to where it wouldn't infect the body and eventually kill the patient. They gambled. They tried uh, to sew him back up, leaving the bullet in there, hoping that he could survive. They sent him to a private residence, and a week later he died. The terrible, tragic irony about this is that it was in the year 1901, and very close to that emergency ward, they were displaying for the first year a fully operational x-ray machine. If they had just moved him a little bit to that x-ray machine, they could have found the bullet and gotten it out of there, and maybe he would have lived. Maybe the life of President William McKinley would have been saved. That's the rest of the story. Don't you love those grabbers at the end? But the point is this. The point is this. That some of us have things in our lives that will make a tremendous difference. And just incremental movement. Just a small practical thing that we already know needs to be done. Do it. Don't delay. Do it. Because God has something to tell you. And number two. It's very important that you do it because until you make that move, until you can see and hear what God has for you, you will not quite have anything in this world in perspective because you will not be able to see it as God sees it. 
You will not be able to hear things as God hears them. And that is very important. Because the little things of our lives tend to take us over. That is very, very obvious at Christmas time when we are overwhelmed with details. When, when just driving down the street is a major uh, headache with all the traffic, going to shop at a store, we are overwhelmed with, with details. And some of us feel the world closing in. But some of you feel the world closing in anyhow. Because there's so many details in your life. And they seem to be everything to you. But they are not everything to you. And God, only God, can give you that perspective. No matter how urgent these details seem, they're still just details. Let me tell you a story. When I was a little kid, two bullies in my neighborhood, Red Bricker, who was a good bully, and Eddie Teach, who was a sadistic bully, did one good thing, added one good thing to the world. They built a treehouse. Just a platform way up in a very tall tree in my backyard. And it was great. You could sit in that treehouse and look over or crawl out under the limbs and look over the whole neighborhood. It was fantastic. Now, when I was growing up, all the kids got together to play every day. And every day was the same routine. We would play for about two minutes and then there'd be an argument. All right? I mean, that's just part of growing up. You argue more than you play. Well, I've never liked to argue. I've always thought arguing was stupid. So somebody would argue, and, and one of the little kids would get into it, and they'd shove a little kid down. And then whoever shoved the little kid down, he'd get shoved down. And then, and then you get this. Hey, never, ever come to my house again. Never step foot on my property. You, I hate you. And if you come to my house, my dad's going to shoot you with his shotgun. And I'm going to call, I'm just going to call the street department to scrape you up because I hate you and I'll never speak to you again as long as I live in my entire life. And five minutes later, what are you guys doing? You know? I mean, but you got, well, about the second I hit you and about the second, I would just quietly slip away and climb up in that treehouse and watch this stuff. Now, even, even, you know, at seven or eight years old, when you watch the routine enough times, it becomes comical. And so I'd watch people get shot. I'd watch this. I'd listen to the same things being said every day from the treehouse and knew that no matter how serious things seemed, life was going to go on. In one form or another, life was going to go on. When I got into junior high school, the same thing. I mean, you, you guys got middle school kids? The se- oh, I hate her. I just hate her. Well, guess what she said about you? <gasps> I, I can't believe that. Oh, my life is ruined. Oh, no. It's going to be all over. It's all around. I'm, oh. Mentally, I'd just crawl back up in that treehouse. Just kind of look at it, you know, knowing that life was going to go on. When we were in high school, the big news were couples, you know. When I was in high school, we had, being a couple was a real big thing. Even when on American Bandstand, they had couples that danced together, you know. And like, uh, you know, I don't know, Chad and Justine or somebody, you know. And, 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 and we would hear that Chad and Justine on American Bandstand broke up. And the girls would cry for days. I can't believe it. They were such a special couple and they broke up. Oh, no, you just can't trust anymore. You know, real. 
you know, back in the treehouse here, back in the treehouse, the world goes on. Life in one form or another goes on. Do you think that Joseph and Mary, knowing that they were living with the Savior of the world, not knowing what that meant, but knowing that a promise had been fulfilled and that God now was living in this world. He was God with us. Do you think that they had a little different perspective than we usually have? Do you think that anything ever devastated them again? I'm not saying that things in our lives don't hurt. They do hurt. But there's something about having the perspective. When we move into the position when we take the journey to God and realize that we can now hear Him and He is with us. And Scripture can be fulfilled through the way we live. There's something that is never terribly threatening again. It doesn't matter what it is. Our lives will go on. And God will have His way. There's a difference. And there's a joy in the journey. Would you pray with me? God, it's such a simple thing, such a practical thing to move to the place, to get ourselves into the position where you can do with our lives what you want to. We pray, Lord God, that you will do exactly that and teach us in very practical terms where we need to move in terms of who we are, in terms of how we listen, so that you can let Jesus be born through us too. We pray in his name. Amen.